0: Hello and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. In this episode, we welcome the talents of the Disney Plus experimental program Short Circuit. How's it going, folks? We're back for a uh, an actual Squiggly Animation Podcast. They're less frequent these days. But just as delightful, I'm sure you'll all agree.
1: They're worth the wait. How are you doing, Steve? Great. Uh, we've been having fun, haven't we? We've been doing the Squiggly Animation Film Club podcast. So we've been uh, watching a film every week and talking over it. So I think that's how we've been getting through this whole <laughs> this whole scenario of... Uh, yeah, it, it's been a weird one, hasn't it? We've It's not that we've avoided this podcast. It's just that uh, reading out that things have been delayed or cancelled or... Uh, bad news, it's just not something that we want to, you know, we want to come on the podcast and put a smile on people's faces, don't we? I'd never got that memo myself, but uh, <laughs> sure, let's try that out for size. Yeah, 98 podcasts in, or however many podcasts it is, let's try and make people smile.
0: Well, uh, okay, new uh, new experimental venture then on the Squiggly podcast, optimism.
1: Yeah, let's give it up after a minute.
0: I <laughs> no, don't trust it. So God, the last one was April, and that was when we were talking about the willow bees, my goodness.
1: Blimey.
0: Seems like a lifetime ago. Mm-hmm. So that was ninety yeah, so this is ninety nine, so we're coming up to uh, the big one zero zero. Well, any uh, any news out there that's tickling you that's getting you excited? Yeah. Um, any God we Anasi's been and gone since the last episode.
1: <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I feel like talking about the last Annecy would be like talking about Annecy in like 2013 or something. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well we you know we put up stuff on Annecy on the website. You can use your eyes. Absolutely. But yeah, there was good stuff there. It was not the Annecy that we know, of course, but um there were advantages and disadvantages to the um the format. Um, one major advantage being that you can turn a film off if it sucks. <laughs> you can sort of do that in the sense that you can cover your eyes and your ears in the cinema or you can walk out indignantly, but that's not very polite. So this is, it's, I like the discretion factor of being like, how many more minutes of this is there? I'll oh,
1: fuck it off. I miss that. I, I miss that about it because I, I the Annecy player, here we are talking about Annecy. We said we would, we would play, but the Annecy player, it. You had to press play on every single film. There wasn't like an autoplay function. And I really miss the fact that you can sit down and you have to watch them. And there were some bad films, uh, as there were some tremendous films. Um, and I, yeah, I put myself through them just for the sake of authenticity.
0: I, I applaud your resolve. <laughs> I like it in, in person, you know, doing the, the, the cinema thing. And there is a value to watching bad films. Cause of course you can bash them afterwards and <laughs> get out some catharsis. the thing is, I think, cause I maybe had my fill of that this year. And I think you, you're probably in the thick of it now with math. You'll have, you know, the entries to go through and I've, I've been doing quite a bit of pre-selection and that's the, you know, the hundreds of films that have to get filtered out for just kind of being a waste of time, Mm. which sounds a bit cruel, but you, you do sort of need to be. It's a sort of ruthless thing. And I also feel like I'm afforded my kind of attitude in that regard, having been involved with, you know, many, many festivals at this point. I've also had many, many rejections. And there's empathy, I think, toward, you know, the whole film festival process. Even when the films are good, it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. To sort of find something that has a kind of, from a curational perspective, something that works as a 90-minute block or whatever.
1: Well, I think we've had this conversation on the podcast before, but it's always worth reiterating, uh, because I've, I had it, I've had it recently. Obviously, people get in touch with me regarding, uh, I think somebody got in touch with me saying, did I submit my film last year? So I had to go and look through the, all the stuff last year uh, to see if they'd submitted their film. And then they asked me why it wasn't accepted. Yeah. And <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> y- yeah, yeah. But I think it's always worth reiterating that, you know, a film is not accepted. When a film is not accepted, it's not because it's bad. It's, it's, you know, it could be, it could be not accepted because it's bad, but don't think it's because it's bad. If, you know, because the question that person asked me was, well, it had been accepted into other film festivals. Well, great. Fantastic. That's, that's amazing. It just wasn't the right fit for our festival. Yeah you know the the films that are we you know the the example i tend to use a lot is a film festival like ottawa uh, they have a tremendous uh, base of experience and they understand say uh, experimental uh, you know if you submit your work to Annecy you might get in the off limits section uh, and and, and you, you'll you be able to show that experimental work but for Manchester Animation Festival there's not much of a platform there because I don't consider myself an expert in that type of thing. I know what I like the look of but I'm not gonna, you know, uh, be some, be putting a film like that in front of an audience, uh, in front of the math audience, because I'm not entirely sure that's what math is known for. And yes, those people are, are perfectly entitled to their successes elsewhere, but just because it's right for one festival does not mean that it's right for every festival. And it does not mean that it's bad either. Sometimes, you know, when you put together a program, you're putting together a mixtape and, you don't want to, you want there to be a nice flow with it. You know, for example, uh, you might have made a film, which is uh, a film about, let's say an environmental film. And I'll, I'll be going through the list, watching the films and an environmental film will come up and I'll go, yeah, that's that's got a really good point. Then I'll watch about 20 or 30 more films and another environmental film will come up and it will say it better.
2: Yeah.
1: Now it's not because the first one was bad it was because the second one said it better. It might have been shorter so I can fit more films into my programme. It might have been a better technique. It might have been... But it's it's better in comparison to two films, not better in comparison to the entire programme.
0: Yeah. That's come up a bit, actually. Yeah, there's kind of um, similar themes and films and topics that one just kind of goes about it a bit better. Hmm. And, it's, you know, it's a shame, I guess, like the other film might have gone A lot of stuff is circumstantial it does help i think being sort of aware i guess of both sides of the looking glass yeah we also know other film programmers and so to, to see their lamentations of the the stuff they have to endure each year and i feel a lot more sympathy with each passing year because of course i got to go through it too but one, <laughs> one was someone who was going on about like how jesus the worst thing about covid is the number of terrible two-minute animation films people have just decided to make because <laughs> they have time to do it. Yeah. But they, they they didn't need to make a film. And the part of me that's, you know, had to go through hundreds of those, and, you know, I don't skip them. I watch them all. Because I, I, sometimes it takes watching till the very end to actually get the value of a film, mm-hmm. I would argue that's the case for the recent BAFTA-winning film. Granddad was a romantic. A lot of its value was in its last moments. Yeah, and then it kind of reframes the whole experience of the film up to that point. So it's I I wouldn't advise skipping if you're you're a curator because you might really miss something. So, as uh, you know, the part of me that has to sort of make myself watch all these films all the way through <laughs> feels, you know, tremendously sympathetic to her. The part of me that just made a two-minute film not that long ago <laughs> and is sending it out to festivals is quite self-conscious. Because <laughs> <laughs> for all I know, one of the films she's talking about is mine. I'm pretty sure I submitted it to the festival she was pre-selecting for. her. Right. But also, of course, the whole state of the world is like. I think we were talking about this out of the podcast, but there is a bit less motivation to send stuff out to festivals, and I'm kind of having to remind myself to bother a lot more.
1: Yeah, I would. Yeah, I would be. I would definitely submit your film to festival. I and mean, obviously, the first thing people would say to that is, "Well, you, you're about to say that, Steve. You're a festival director. Look, our call for entries has closed this year, and we've got." pretty much what we usually get in terms of entries we did really well this year in fact our industry excellence awards we doubled uh, what we usually get entry wise so we're really proud of the way that things are going uh, in that regard but yeah i was part of a a, a british council uh, like a, a one of their animation salons and their salons that they do and the question a question came up from uh, uh, people who were allowed to ask the questions and it was uh, I've just finished my debut film with the company that I work for and the the bosses have decided that they're not going to submit the film to any festivals this year. That is tremendously short-sighted, I would say, and I did say. Um, because, you know, film festivals rely on films and films rely on film festivals. That's the... it's It's got a whole relationship there that if one of them doesn't happen, the other one can't happen. And if you take away one from the other, the other just doesn't exist. So if you're sat on a film, if you're squirreling away a film thinking, well, if I give it a a year, uh, this virus will go away and I'll be able to go to festivals again. I would suggest just submit it, please, because festivals need to survive this this kind of turbulence that it's going through and in the same regard uh, I would encourage anyone to go to as many of these kind of festivals and online events as possible you know Cardiff are putting up some absolutely fantastic events at the moment so if you go to the Cardiff Animation Festival website they've got loads of events that people can get involved with you know it, it now more than ever we need that community and we need filmmakers to, to contribute their films to festivals so we can celebrate them you know just because we, it doesn't happen in a cinema doesn't mean that it's not valuable uh you know i think i said on the last podcast and maybe i've not if it was april (laughs) but uh math have said that if you submit your film to the festival this year and you can't because it's too late uh but if you submit your festival to film this year and we don't select it you can submit it again next year and if you do get selected and you get through to in competition then next year we'll screen it on the big screen and you can, or the the next time the cinemas are open, we'll screen it on the big screen and you can come and have that festival experience. You can have the network and you can do all the stuff that you would usually do. So, yeah, a a few festivals are kind of meeting that that demand, I think, of the thing that is missing. Hmm.
0: What I think we've kind of been pushed toward is a conversation that, there was a bit of resistance around having. And so you mentioned the kind of dynamic there of festivals and films being reliant on each other. Mm. And I think that there's been more of a kind of growing assumption that isn't completely groundless, but that festivals are more dependent on films because without festivals, there is still the opportunity for online success. Yeah. And with each passing year, that can be more of a guarantee of career furtherance but there's an awful lot of stuff that still does hinge on festival inclusion certain rungs of the uh, the industry ladder if you you're dedicated to climbing up that particular ladder it's absolutely crucial that you strategize and consider specific festivals when you're sending your film out because it just won't be considered legitimate otherwise mm. and whether or not that's going to remain the status quo we'll have to wait and see but the, the conversation was, okay, well, people... The online world is growing and growing and growing. Is there a way we can bring these two things together that won't put one off the other? Um, and I think that that's actually... We're starting to finally kind of see that out of necessity. So all of these online versions of festivals... And they're proving to not be, like... It's not a dreadful concept. It's, it's, it's kinks to work out, but it's getting there. We'll have to sort of find, I think, some solutions as we go as far as addressing certain elements, community elements and networking elements and mm. whatnot. But within the last four months, like huge strides have already been made. So in a way, I think it's, it's kind of good. I think it's sort of like nudged us forward and we have been kind of in a holding pattern for a few years. On this subject, it's something that is discussed in the book a little bit when it comes to distribution is that attitude is online or festivals, or how do you combine the two? And I think the attitude of saying, okay, well, if it's only ever going to be online, then I'll just release it on my own terms. I think that is kind of shackling yourself a little bit, Mm. because there's still a nice thing about being involved in a screening that has some degree of exclusivity or is part of, you know, an overall package of films. You know, I love seeing my work among <laughs> better films because <laughs> I get to ride them coattails like fucking water skis. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's you know it's an it's an interesting development. Um, not what I think people would have wanted, but there's a, there's advantages to be had. I think.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, animation festivals have to change from now on. I would say that any any animation festival that believes that this is the you know that everything will go back to normal they won't go back to normal you know we have to consider well the the entire world has got to change and that that includes animation festivals so you know you have to have an online component but yeah as as you said there as well ben it's really important that that sort of social side of things the networking side of things that continues as well because otherwise all you've got is a glorified youtube channel
0: yeah
1: and you know that's the that's the last thing you want really you need to be able to bring the community together and that's what it's all about really at the end of the day yeah. So yeah, um, that was that was us not speaking about Annecy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in, in terms of uh, short films and stuff, some very welcome news this uh, in the last couple of uh, days. Uh, Don Hertzfeldt has revealed the teaser trailer for World of Tomorrow Episode Three, which looks, as you would expect, absolutely amazing. Uh, so yeah, world of uh, World of Tomorrow. Episode 3, The Absent Destinations of David Prime.
0: Uh, I actually haven't watched this one yet, so I'm going to uh, pop it up, if you don't mind.
1: Don't mind at all. I'm not going anywhere.
0: <laughs> nice bit of abrasive foley to kick things off. <laughs> I have such- Well, it's keeping its cards pretty close to its chest, but that's sort yeah. of the Don Hertzfeld way. <laughs> the the first two were fantastic. I think that, that you know, it's got the makings of another It's Such a Beautiful Day. Yeah. I don't know if that's his plan for it, if he wanted to if he wants to release it as a kind of feature thing later on, but it's always nice when people actually people when people that you like continue to make new work and it's good. <laughs> because I'm finding that, you know, And, well, it's something that I I noticed when we started doing Squiggly. It's people that I was a huge fan of from their sort of classically well-known work. And they'd be like, oh, there's a new film from such and such. And you see it and it's in the festival program. And you're like, oh, I'm looking forward to this one because this person can do no wrong and it stinks. (laughs) (laughs) But I've yet to see a Don Hertzfeld film that wasn't wonderful.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: He really knows what it is he wants to do with his films and his ideas are pretty rock solid. That is good news.
1: Yeah, a lot to look forward to there. Um, No pressure, Mr. Hertzfeld. So yeah, on to the world of features then, uh, if we're kind of careering through this cavalcade of uh, cartoon news. Uh, Pixar have revealed their next feature film, or one of the next feature films that's coming up, is uh, Luca. and This is going to be directed by La Luna director Enrico Casa Rosa. Um so yeah it's going to be uh, hitting US theaters next summer. It's going to be directed by the guy who did La Luna. I don't know if you remember this uh, uh Pixar short film. It was the uh, the little boy and his dad are fishing and, and stars are falling. Um I think uh, it's a long time since I've seen it. <laughs> but it was quite a sweet little uh, Little short film. And uh, It's going to be produced by uh, Andrea Warren, who produced uh, your favourite, your favourite Pixar short film, Lava, uh, and Cars Three, your favourite Pixar feature film. Ben,
0: yours and mine, surely it's a shared love affair with those particular jewels in the crown of Pixar's back catalogue.
1: I'm sorry, that's cruel. It's uh, yeah, so it's uh, set in a town on the Italian Riviera. It's a, one of those coming-of-age stories. Ben, a coming-of-age story, yeah? Uh, About one young boy uh, who uh, he finds a newfound best friend, but uh, all the fun is threatened by uh, deeply held secrets that he's a sea monster, and another world is just below the water's surface. So there you go. Ah, uh, a world under the sea. Hmm.
0: I wonder if uh, there'll be a fun array of quirky
1: characters that await him. It doesn't say so, Ben. So uh, you could be wrong there. It's
0: probably just bracken and <laughs> shipwrecks and stuff shopping
1: like that. trolleys. Yeah. Um, so yeah, obviously the next film that Pixar I've got coming out is uh, Pete Doctor's Soul, uh, which uh, is due this November. If uh, yeah, if 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 everything's okay, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, um, another Pixar film coming. They're still making them. Lots to look forward to there. Did you ever see uh, Onward? No, no, I'm waiting for it to be released on uh, Disney Plus over here in the UK. Have you seen it? Do you see it in the cinemas before Uh, they started spraying everyone with disinfectant and harrowing big crooked pieces of wood over the doors of everything?
0: Yeah, I think it was one of the last films I saw in the cinema, depressingly. Mm. Um, Actually, no, I went to Anima after, so. But um, I went with my, uh, my little niece, who seemed to kind of enjoy it. It was right, it was fine. Yeah. Didn't rock my world, but it had uh, some good gags in it. What she was not impressed by, and I had to concur, was the completely valueless Maggie Simpson cartoon that they played before it. Right. It hadn't sort of occurred to me, so, oh, yeah, they're all part of that world now. Mm. And it's sort of a sh- cause it's sort because of, it's not only, you know, yet another unfunny thing with Simpsons characters, but it's now kind of tainting... What until the Lava film had been a largely pretty good track record of short films that preceded uh, Pixar features.
1: Yeah, I think with, with, we obviously we were we didn't enjoy the story of Lava. I think that's safe to say, uh, and we didn't enjoy. Well, like cast three was okay. Uh, it was cast two, which was uh, utter uh, not my favourite. <laughs> um but in terms of like the Pixar short films they uh, and the features it always seemed that they were striving to uh make a technological advancement and so Pixar render man would always work and strive to to create something new so with lava it was the the physics of under the un, under the water uh you know where you got as as you said Ben um at the farting volcano and all that sort of stuff um and with with the Cars franchise I think the first one it was reflections uh and textures and things like that that was that was the, the the big thing that they were after uh with Cars and obviously you can go right the way back so um you know obviously the first Toy Story film everything looks like it's made out of plastic and then you got to Bug's Life and then they were experimenting with uh, translucent effects so so you can see through leaves and things like that uh Monsters Inc they were playing with uh fur textures uh and so, yeah, we're at a point now. I think where you can do pretty much anything and everything with CG. Um, and CG people feel free to get in touch with me and tell me what utter rubbish that is. Um, but it, we've 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 come a point. We've come to a point where you know you can create what's in your imagination. Um, and so when you go to the cinemas and there's a as a Maggie Simpson short, I mean what was the what was the innovation in the Maggie Simpson short then?
0: I don't really remember any as such, but I do remember around the time that it went out, Yardley Smith, who was the voice of Lisa Simpson, posted up a still of it. And it was a shot where Maggie doesn't have her pacifier in her mouth. And Yardley Smith was at this tweet going, Maggie Simpson looks exactly like Lisa
1: Simpson <laughs> Like
0: sweet. So- Thirty seasons in that you're realizing that now. I <laughs> <Ay>, carumba <laughs> and like people were replying, going, "Oh my god!" <laughs> <laughs> it's like in Wallace and Gromit where he takes off the glove. He's like, oh, "It was you all along." <laughs> <laughs> like, did she never watch the show? <laughs> <laughs> So that was the only innovation I can think of was pulling back the the blinds of uh this uh this trick that they pulled on us for so long. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh artistically or animation pipeline wise, I have to say I'm drawing a blank. Right. Uh, it looked like an episode of The Simpsons, maybe slightly more dynamic camera work mm. uh, than you would see and but no more than would have been in The Simpsons movie.
1: So speaking of old uh, old series on the way back and everything. Have you seen the uh, the Animaniacs are coming back, then? The uh, Hulu have added uh, Animaniacs and Woke to their animation slate and they've released an image of the Hulu logo with uh, Yakko, Wacko, Dots, Pinky and the Brain uh, all uh, gamboling around it.
0: I did see that image. I saw someone post it up. The, well, the person who designed the image posted it up. Mm. And then um, someone else retweeted it saying, I was the one who coloured it in. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Well done, both of you. <laughs> it's a fine image. You both did a bang-up job.
1: What were you expecting from a from an Animaniacs reboot?
0: Oh, it's not really one that's ever kind of... It's not something that's swelled around in my head at all.
1: Mm. Um,
0: I What I liked about that was... Um, Pinky in the brain, yeah. I think, and I don't, I don't remember much else of it. To be fair, well, how about yourself?
1: Well, I didn't know quite know what to expect because obviously we follow some of the directors on Twitter and all that sort of stuff, and so they kind of gave gave an inkling as to that they were working on it, and I was like, oh wow, well, this I, I'd, I'd love to see how how it's going to be designed and how it's going to be uh, brought to to a future audience, and I'm looking at this image and it looks exactly the same. Which is fine. Which is great. You know, I suppose as long as the writing's there, so long as the the kind of the madcap fun uh, and everything else is there, then great. I think the thing that I loved most about the Animaniacs as a kid, and I didn't appreciate this as a kid, was the fact that they were basically a modern day Looney Tunes. They they were episodic. They were they were like you know five or six minutes per. You know, you go and see Pinky in the Brain, and then you go back to, to the Animaniacs, and then you go to the pigeons, then you go to Slappy Squirrel, and then you you know, and it was always the same gag. Or it was always the same kind of premise. And then you'd go to something else. So you were you were constantly entertained throughout. And I think that's that was something that, that I really appreciated, that energy, that fun. Um yeah, great. I didn't know that it was over 20 years, 22 years since the last episode.
0: I would have actually placed it a little further back, like sort of more beginning of the 90s. Yeah. So closer to 30 years. But uh, there you go. That's how that's how memory works when you're an old piece of shit like me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, is it because Yakko's trousers are up quite high and they're a little bit sort of MC Hammer? That must have been it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And... Uh, wacko's got his hat on backwards which is that's so 90s that's that's you know nobody better mess with him
0: you make a good point because i hadn't that hadn't actually kind of pinged in my head when i did see the image was it's pretty much how they look yeah um there's been no kind of you know enormous dynamic contemporization efforts being made Mm -hmm. um to I'm sure the relief of, of many people who just cannot stand it when people do that. They made the design look slightly different. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes it, it can be a shame when they, they do mess up a design, but at the same time, just being different isn't automatically the death of a concept before it begins. Um, but, you know, fair play to them. If they uh, felt that this was one that was sort of best left untouched, you know, that's all right with me.
1: Yeah, there's no there's no talk on who's going to... Ret- I mean, it would be criminal not to have the original voiceover artists in there, so not to hear, like, um, uh, Maurice Lamarche doing uh, The Brain and um, uh, Rob Paulson, and people like that, to, to kind of to, to be working on this. So hopefully, fingers crossed, those guys are coming back. Um, yeah, yeah, loads of, uh, you know, loads of fun there. I'm just looking forward to when they bring Freakazoid back um, so yeah, when, uh, the other thing that they've announced, uh, that Hulu have announced is, is Woke, which, uh, which is a, an animation live action hybrid, uh, which looks, uh, looks like a load of fun, uh, as well. I don't know if you've seen the trailer for this, Ben.
0: Uh, no, I don't think so.
1: No. Um, it's a, ba- it's, it's a, cart- it's based on the life of a cartoonist, um, uh, he's a black cartoonist, and he's just you know people are telling him to get political. In the trailer, he's like, "Oh no, I don't want to get political." And then he's uh, he's subject to a bit of police brutality, uh, and that obviously opens his eyes to the situation that that um, that's going on around, that's going in in the world. Um, and he's then uh, what well, looks like he's actually accosted by loads of animated characters that that kind of. Uh, manifests before him, so things come to life, things are animated. Uh, it looks great, and it looks like it's got quite a good message with it as well, which is good.
0: Yeah, I'm having a watch of the trailer now. Um, it looks fun. I'm always a little wary of the, um, you know, this, someone gets bonked on the head and then they see the world in a whole new life kind of thing, because that's not a trope that has had a brilliant history when it comes to films and TV shows, but um this looks fun. Well, it's nice to kind of see new stuff coming out at all, because one thing that I'm actually starting to feel a bit... Didn't for the first few months, but it's starting to happen now where coverage and stuff for shows and uh, stuff that was being developed is being stalled. So there's quite a bit of squiggly stuff that's actually in the wings because people are just delaying uh, announcements or releases. Um, yeah. It's a good thing we have the Film Club podcast.
1: To keep us sane and the uh, the listeners... Um uh, absolutely uh, distraught with us talking over their favorite films. So
0: in the episode of uh, the squiggly film club that went up a few days ago, we were watching Paranorman mm-hmm. and uh, we were discussing how at its heart, it's sort of an exploration of like that witch hunt mentality. Yes. And in the film itself, it kind of self analogizes a literal witch hunt to the kind of more modern, you know, lynch mobs of you know today. Each passing year, it's become more and more of a relevant theme And we really do thrive on any kind of, like, righteousness-driven anger. Uh, If there's an interesting enough target we can annihilate, you know, we'll marshal our resources and we'll get the job done. Um, Which, of course, I don't think either of us are are necessarily above. Like, I try not to jump on every bandwagon, but every once in a while something comes along and you're like, oh, like that dickhead in the ramble. I was quite happy when she was, like, you know, chastened and... um, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was annoyed when she got a dog back, but uh, she might have gotten a job back as well, actually. The thing is, of course, we move on. Mm. That was months ago. And we forget, and then, the you know, the, the world keeps turning for these people. And they were humbled for a bit, but, you know, their life isn't over. Yeah, These things, when they come around and they, you know, get us all worked up, they do have expiry dates when it comes to public interest. Or maybe, if not, like, permanent expiry dates... They come in seasons, like the tides. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes they come around again. Uh, And inevitably, of course, as with any industry, this happens in the animation industry. Things will blow up. People will have uh, harmful behaviors exposed and we'll all kick up a fuss until one day we're not anymore because it's sort of left our minds or there's another hornet's nest that's been kicked up somewhere to take our attention away from it. Uh, Because we're a fickle bunch. This damned human race of ours. Anyway, it turns out the best way to kick up a hornet's nest at this point, while the world is crumbling around us, is to reboot a bunch of 90s cartoons. (laughs) You, of course, know of what I speak. Yes. When the kind of initial sort of furore around uh, Ren and Stimpy broke, and, you know, chiefly around John Kay and all of the allegations of misconduct and stuff we kind of s- discussed it at length at the time and i don't think it needs to be sort of retrod super much not at all but as far as the actual decision to reboot this show i've you know we've seen a lot of reboot announcements come and go over the years it's not just been this month this, you know it's an ongoing thing all the time i don't think i've ever seen one that was so universally unsatisfying to every camp of the show's fandom, like, no one's happy about this news. Yeah. It hasn't made anyone's day. And what I've been able to kind of work out is there are, like, three main factions, I guess. One of the idiots who think that John, having been outed as someone who comported himself appallingly, should be involved. These are people, I think, who were never really educated on the production realities of the show, and unquestionably feel that his artistic ability, which, by the way, at the end of the day, is just okay. We've got to fucking move on from the idea that it's exceptional. He did some great drawings, but he's not... He didn't reinvent the wheel. Yeah, exactly. Some people need to grow up a little bit about that. That it was so great that it transcends abusive behaviour is absolutely ridiculous. So that's the first kind of camp, as people like, oh, if John Kay isn't involved, fuck it. So, well, Missing the point a bit. Now, the other camp... Is the Bob Camp camp, who feel that Bob Camp, who was the other contributing creator of the show and carried it on after Junkie Sussi was fired, that he deserves a chance to bring it back, and apparently he found out about the reboot like after everyone else did, yeah, and no one ever called him and asked him to be involved, and he's a little annoyed about that, which I think is is reasonable. So there are people who who feel like okay, well, we, we do we do want it back, but not if he's not going to be involved. Now, I don't particularly think that... I'd I'd love to see a show by him, but I think we can leave those characters and that premise in the past. You know, I don't think his value needs to be so tied in with that IP. Mm -hmm. Because he's a great artist, and from what I gather, he's actually kind of a nice guy. Anyway, the third camp is people who, at this point, find the very name of the show and the characters immediately incendiary and triggering because this brand has been so tainted by what came out behind the scenes. Now, in that camp, I'm seeing a lot of misinformation that is sort of conflating various iterations of the show in pursuit of making points that don't necessarily need to be made or aren't really factual. Even bearing that in mind, I'm probably in that camp. Hmm. I The attitude that we don't really need it with or without the original team involved. I did a whole episode about why I loved the show when it was on and what it sort of did as far as my, you know, informing what I do in animation, but it doesn't need to come back. Like a reimagined Ren and Stimpy for adult audiences is a terrible idea. It was a terrible idea when John Kricfalusi did it 15, 20 years ago. You know, his reboot was a complete non-event. It disappointed fans and it fucked up the lives of people who worked on it. Yeah. Why would you want to try and do a new one when the first attempt to do a new one was so terrible? It's like, oh, well, he's not going to be involved. Doesn't matter. It Doesn't make it a good idea. Mm. So this news is kind of on the heels of other Comedy Central acquisitions, including a new Beavis and Butthead. Yes. And a new Clone High. And a Daria spin-off show. All of which, of course, the world has been
1: clamouring for. What would the Daria spin-off show be? A spin-off of a spin-off? Yeah. If... Daria's a spin-off of Beavis and Butthead, isn't it?
0: I, I imagine it would be sort of tangentially connected to Daria in the way that Daria was to Beavis and Butthead, because because Daria wasn't a Mike Judge show at all. No, no. But the character appeared in Beavis and Butthead, but in Daria, it's not like in Frasier when someone from Cheers shows up every once in a while and the go, says, "Hey, it's fucking Woody Harrelson. Yeah. No, you know, Beavis and Butthead or Mr. Van Driesen, they don't show up in Daria. It's as if they kind of took the character and put her in an alternate reality.
1: So it's it's, it's basically Sean the Sheep.
0: Yes, so that makes... Um, is it called Jodie, I think?
1: That'll be the Timmy she's, time.
0: She's Timmy time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did you ever watch Daria? Uh,
1: no, I've watched Timmy time. No, yeah, I've watched, <laughs> yeah, i watched her. Yes, I did watch Daria.
0: Within the context of Daria, Jodie wasn't necessarily, I think, the sort of archetypical token minority character. But it wasn't... An enormously progressive scenario, either like there was a show that seemed to have liberal values, but it played it pretty safe, and there were some little political warm potatoes that were occasionally brought up within it. Mm. But largely, it was just like teenagers moaning <laughs> and being sarcastic. Yeah, and be I'd be frightfully witty, but that's sort of what it's like it, this podcast exactly,
1: except for the teenagerness. <laughs>
0: So you know, if if uh, if there's a germ of an idea there, you know, I don't see much harm coming from. it, But I don't really think it's hugely necessary. What is the the need for the character to be pre-existing?
1: Good shout! Yeah, I, I think this is what a lot of people are really complaining about is that we're seeing this kind of this all these all these reboots are coming along. Uh, whereas there are people who are working on these shows who have worked on other shows that have ideas and and they're not able to get to to into the in front of the executives they're not able to get in front of the people with the with the money and these people with the money are are more uh they'd rather have a safe bet they they don't want to see what a modern uh you know take on or what, 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 what would a modern day beavis and butthead be like um how would beavis and butthead fit into today's society I mean, the wood, the Beavis and ButtHead would fit into today's society. It's always the peripheral characters that act as today as the day society in Beavis and ButtHead. But um, yeah, I I I I really think that there's a that there is there is absolutely room for 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 new ideas uh, and and new characters from. From from new artists, please for God's sake, give us some of that. You know, um, I, I am looking forward to Animaniacs. I will say that because Animaniacs has always been uh, has always been great and uh, and good good solid fun. We can
0: still like old things and hope that new versions of them turn out all right. It just doesn't have to be everything. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, absolutely.
0: I'm probably going to watch the new Bill & Ted when it comes out. Yeah. I'm not expecting it to change my opinion on cinema forever, but I saw a trailer for it. It looks like a Bill & Ted movie. Like, it does exactly what it says on the tin.
1: It looks It looks like Bill & Ted with good special effects.
0: But if, like, every film I was going to see this year was some sequel to a film from the 80s or the 90s, mm. it would get kind of tedious pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, indeed, indeed. I, I, I've had this conversation... Uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, it was Bugs Bunny's 80th birthday. And whenever there's a big anniversary and whenever radio stations uh, uh, need some sort of a, a nice light segment, um, occasionally I get a phone call. So earlier on in the year, it was Scooby-Doo's birthday. And so I had to go on and, and, and talk to radio stations about about whether or not I liked Scrappy-Doo, uh, <laughs> which was which is good fun. And every single one of them asked me to do a flipping impression of Scooby-Doo. Um, and this time it was Bugs Bunny, uh, and I put up a little bit of snack before, and saying, "Oh, they're bound to ask me to do impressions." And lo and behold, no one asked me to do impressions, which was which was Which was thank God for that. Um, but do one now? No. Um, <laughs> and so uh, the, uh, the and so they're always great. They always ask the same question. They always ask what's so great about these cartoons? What do we like about them? And so you have to give your academic answer, you know, um, you know, because I'm a professor of nonsense from the university of cartoons. So you've got to, you've got to give them that, uh, that side of things. And, they were all largely the same, and then one one of these guys asked me uh, about gun violence in the in the Looney Tunes cartoons. Every now and then, somebody'll ask the controversial question, or the question that you know he's saying it, we're all thinking it, and and no one's thinking it or saying it. And his question was about you know gun violence uh, in you know you won't be able to have Elmer Fudd chasing Bugs Bunny around with a gun anymore, would you? Yeah, you would, because they released those cartoons a couple of weeks ago. Uh, also, if you can say that they're not as good as the old ones, the old ones are available on DVD. And they're exactly the same as they were when you fell in love with them. And that's the beauty of DVDs. That's the beauty of cartoons. You can always go back to them. So no matter how bad these things are, no matter, you know, just, yeah, go, go back to them. And you can see through that lens why they're being rebooted, because... Maybe they're not making enough money out of DVDs. Maybe they're not making enough money out of on on demand streaming services, and so they have to create new new versions of these cartoons. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I don't even know what the bloody question is, but <laughs> um it's an odd it's an odd scenario we find ourselves in.
0: It is interesting, like it sort of goes back to the things if there's something we can seek out to provoke or be annoyed about or be angry about. We'll try and find us. So, oh, they had guns in those old cartoons? Yeah. Like the the you know, the very idea. I remember I one of my first sort of squiggly interviews was with a guy called Eric Drucker, who's generally a graphic novelist, but he had done animation for a independent film called Howl. He had a great quote about his sort of animation interests, and it was along the lines of like Bugs Bunny's my main role model, because he never starts shit. Yeah. He, he always is just minding his own business until some white guy with a gun puts it in his face, <laughs> and then then he retaliates. And I thought that was a great summation of why that character is so everlasting. Yeah. And I think the, the role of, you know, a firearm in that scenario is not completely useless. It sort of has its sort of part to play. Uh, and also, if you get a shotgun blast to your face... And the worst thing that happens is your beak is facing the other way. <laughs> like, maybe it's not traumatising depictions of um, weapons misuse.
1: Well, exactly. And especially if you can just move the beak around to the front and then just tell them that they're despicable. You know, it's...
0: Well, but what if someone saw that and picked up a shotgun and fired it into their friend's face? It's like, well, then the, the cartoon's not the problem in that situation. Yes, the
1: firearm. other shit at play. <laughs> Having easy access.
0: But the kid who like the there's always that one kid who you know they watched um you know too many episodes of uh, uh the Timmy Mallet show and you know brought a hammer into school and <laughs> 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 like it wasn't timmy mallett's fault <laughs> like the, if the kid can't discern between a big foam hammer and one he stole from his dad's toolbox, then I think the parents need to have some accountability there. Well, the other authority figures <laughs> in his life
1: oh my god I used to love Timmy Mallet that was me as a kid no um <laughs> just the,
0: braiding kids in
1: the yeah studio. yeah <laughs> going around cracking skulls um I, although I, I must have told this story on the podcast before about my uh, Ninja Turtles outfit as a kid and it was fancy dress day and I had the Raphael uh outfit and they he has the size doesn't he the uh the ninja sword things, and I was showing off my moves, um, and uh, there was a, a mother with a pram, and I was showing off my my awesome skills. Maybe a little bit too close to this pram, and so my my flimsy plastic hollow, ra- well rounded, you know curved, and, and and no damage whatsoever had to be confiscated from me. And, and I spent the whole day in a sulk, exactly how Raphael would be if uh, if he'd have had his uh, If, he, his if he
0: lost his sight.
1: Yeah, for attacking He would pram. feel
0: very driven to get it back.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was Bradford anyway, so all the other kids were armed anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but yeah, so reboots, shmreeboots, there you go.
0: Well, this is the other, the other thing with Beavis and Butthead, like with Ren and They already rebooted it. Yes, And no one gave a shit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like,
0: it was, again, it was pretty much a non-event, and the contemporization was, oh, instead of watching music videos, they're watching Catfish, or whatever was on MTV at the time. And, all right, but who needed that? Who asked for that? Yeah. You know, and what I'm kind of hearing rumours about now is that it's going to be that they're actually middle-aged and they have kids, that just sort of feels very kind of I don't know uh, creativity by committee.
1: But also, is, is it a fact that maybe Mike Judge can no longer, being as he is a a, a man of, uh, of of years advanced of Beavis and Butthead, that he can no longer relate to uh, to slackers um, and and you know that energy no longer exists. But he's got lots of ideas about being a middle aged man. We'll do another King of the Hill then. Like people actually, like, still remember it
0: as a show for one. Um, and they go back to it. Yeah.
1: There's things that... there's things that um, uh, I think there was a, a, a... You know, people on Twitter will put up quotes of of Hank Hill, and they, they fit really well today. Um, it, it, it's such a great show. It's, it's, it's always one that's worth going back to.
0: You know, I just remembered something. He put out some Beavis and Buttheads on DVD... So I had the DVD and there was a note in it that came with all the DVDs it was like you you're, you're gonna be watching these DVDs and you're gonna wonder there's a lot of episodes missing uh, I was watching them and I decided that most of them aren't very good so I've only put in the good one right <laughs> like he didn't even like the show mm. <laughs> but he basically just put out like you know a best of dVd he, he didn't see any point in putting out a full run of episodes on the dvd just sort of unheard of mm. but you know, if the guy who created it is like yeah eh, no not all of it stuck to the wall then maybe that's telling in some way
1: yeah, yeah it was also filler as well wasn't it it was also there just sits between music videos and then they'd go ha, 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 over the music videos wouldn't they? that was basically the premise of uh, of beavis and butthead uh, it was a it was a variety show using you know stuff that MTV already owned or or had rights to. Anyway, um, how are we going to fix this, Ben? What's the what's the new rule for for, for television executives? I'd say that if you're going to reboot Beavis and Butt Edge you have to give two people on that show a chance to pitch a brand new show that we've never heard of before. Then the world will be right.
0: Yeah, and then cancel the reboot early on.
1: Problem solved. Right. Let's there we go. Moving on. Next motion.
0: So what I'm finding now, especially um, uh, encouraging about the wonderful world of um, Twitter, I guess mainly, and animation fans in general, the, the other big sort of thing is like, well, do we really need new shows from, you know, these guys who have made shows already and, you know, will have other opportunities elsewhere? Do we really need to give them the gig? Like you say, give them to someone else who's a, a rising talent in animation mm. and, um Fortuitously, uh, less than 24 hours before the recording of this podcast, A24 announced the full run of a new series called Has Been Hotel, which is based on a very, very popular YouTube pilot that went up, I think, at the end of last year. You got millions and millions of views. Big, big online success. Uh, A24 have a pretty good track record with features. They distribute and I think also make films. They've done some pretty great work, and it does seem like, you know, they have a pretty good reputation as far as having an eye for exciting ideas and properties and things like that. It's not a middle-aged white guy who created it, Mm. which is refreshing. It's a woman called Vivian Medrano. This is it. This is someone who's been given an opportunity, and uh, the reaction is generally positive, except for the percentage who are just like, no, not her. (laughs) Like, we won a new show by you know underrepresented voices but not this one
1: I, 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 I'm, I'm lost I'm a loss always at a loss for word when you click on Twitter and you, you type in you type in anything that you think you know you oh, might get some 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 ideas to what's going on here uh, you click on latest and it's just the internet's tearing itself apart over this show
0: well the the criticisms I think rely on a lot of buzzwords and again going back to like people kind of being poetic about the facts to make their point. If you have to contort reality so much in the furtherance of your point, then maybe your point doesn't have a lot of merit.
3: Mm.
0: And what's sort of basically being leveled against this woman who a lot of people didn't necessarily know about until yesterday that, okay before we start you know giving her kudos we have to look into her problematic history mm. I like well, Okay, that in that as a concept I wouldn't say is a bad idea. Let's look at that then. And so they're talking about how she she's a pedophile, she promotes transphobia, she promotes racism, like, well that's no good. That she sounds like a, a right piece of work. I wouldn't want to see a show by her. Try and find anything that she's done that really legitimately supports those arguments.
1: I'm looking And I've been
0: having a look. It's only been, you know, one morning, but I've been looking quite I've seen a lot of stuff that categorically proves it wrong and that she's actually fine. But the people who, you know, are, are making the, the claims and putting out these buzzwords, they don't have really anything to kind of back it up other than this stuff that's screenshots taken out of context or drawings that are kind of misdescribed what's happening in them. I mean, issues like pedophilia and transphobia and racism, you, ha- you can't just throw them around. Yeah. That's so fucking babyish. Mm. They they're they're very, very serious things and you can't be glib about them. Yeah. Because you didn't like her pilot. I I find that very, very worrying.
1: Yeah, indeed. That it's
0: already being becoming part because that's the thing, like, you know, enough people say it. It doesn't need to have facts to, to back it up. People still think um, people will buy into the more easily digestible narrative, and that's the one that tends to be more sensational. That's why the news will rush to condemn a suspect in a crime but have no particular interest in their vindication when it's proved completely false, unless they sue them. Mm. But, you know, they're smart, they're wily, and they do it in such a way that doesn't necessarily open them up for litigation. Um, They will allege things. And that just becomes this kind of accepted apocryphal fact. And I think that that's something that is so unnecessary. If at the first opportunity when someone you know gets a shot at something that could be you know a a legitimate contribution and something that could you know promote more people being given opportunities like this if you're immediately shutting it down based on information you don't have the emotional intelligence to fully understand then you're the one making it worse for yourself you can't then complain later on
1: so Uh, i think you've you've raised some you've raised some real real good points there and and is is this something that that is completely? There's no chance of, of that changing. Are we in? Are we in this world now where if somebody's going to put something and, and and label something as transphobic or label something as, as as homophobic or you know use use this kind of this dialogue to 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 send people against it? Are we are we in that world now where that's just? That people aren't going to change that. Have we gone too far?
0: I think that it's always kind of been in us, and I don't know if we're, as a species, going to grow out of it anytime soon. The sort of hope is that the the greater percentage will win out, and common sense will win out.
1: And that's the problem with, with Twitter. You can easily retweet something, and I try, and, you know, and, and that's where people go retweets don't equal endorsements. Um. Or retweets, do equal endorsements, you know, all that, sort of, all that sort of Twitter crap. Whatever mood they're in that supports their fucking logic. Well, exactly. <clears throat> do you bloody research, people. Get your facts and then talk.
0: If it turns out that this woman, that people are kind of, you know, it's not everyone, by the way, but I am noticing a lot of stuff in the sort of feed as a reaction to the news. Yeah. Being ah, like, oh, but I heard that she needed this. And I was like, oh, okay, but you heard it, but did you see it? And
1: Yeah, and the thing, here's the thing is, I've not seen the show. I don't know anything of this creator. I don't know. I'm not sitting here going, I'm the biggest fan of Has Been Hotel. Don't you fucking dare. You know, all, I'm not, yeah. I'm not, studi- I'm saying, I'm studying saying, let, give people, give people a chance. And if there's no evidence against something, then then there's simply no evidence against something. Now it could be that we have to readdress this in the next podcast because people will send us evidence. But, yeah, I've I, I, I've not seen anything. I've just been I've just been looking there. You've not seen anything, but what I have seen is I've seen a lot of fury over something that doesn't exist. So yeah. there you go.
0: Like yeah, if, if if something comes up after we record this, that's legitimate proof or whatever. Then we you can take that on board. Like we were talking about again in the last film club, you don't have to dig into every stance you take. You don't have to double down. If you are further educated on a the subject, then you can, you know, your your opinion can change and be informed by that. You're not flip flopping; yeah. you're just becoming more educated.
1: You're learning.
0: This might all be moot, of course, if it turns out the husband hotel is is not a very good show, uh, but it will not have hurt anyone. So screw it. Yeah. <laughs> more power to her. Indeed. Any uh, any other '90s cartoons being brought back in some form or other, maybe in film form. They're all
1: been brought back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, the one thing that's been, that's been given the live action treatment is uh, is Disney's Mulan, uh, which uh, is heading to Disney Plus with uh, with a, an extra price tag attached to it. Ben, Ooh. Disney have announced that they've lost three billion and a half dollars. They're not done very well out of this whole pandemic thing, uh, and lots of their Movies are obviously, it's a bad time to make a film <laughs> if you're live action. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a good time to make money with the cinema shut. Uh, and so Disney has sat on this film, which is complete, and it's a live action remake of Mulan. And so what are they going to do with it? Because, you know, they could stick it on their, their Disney Plus platform, which has done incredibly well. Apparently there's more downloads on Disney Plus than there is on BBC iPlayer, and is free. So... You know, it's acting as this um, the, the the sort of digital babysitter that, that that they wanted it to be. Everyone's watching all the stuff, and and that is great. We spoke about reboots. Um, my niece and nephew are absolutely they love Darkwing Duck. They go and watch that all the time. They're like six and seven, and whenever uh, and so it's really weird watching these kids quote stuff that. I used to watch as a kid and they don't care that it's that old i must have said before a couple of years ago um we were on netflix and there were two versions of inspector gadget and you know my, my nephew went put Inspector gadget on i thought all right you want to watch this new one dear so i put the inspector gadget and went, no not that one the proper one <laughs> and it filled my heart with so much joy as <laughs> inspector gadget was my favorite thing as a kid um so yeah it, it's 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 great. Um, but yeah, so uh, Disney has sat on Mulan. They have this kind of multi-million you know, million pound project. They want to make their money back. And so what they've decided to do is release it for um, $29.99 on top of your subscription charge. So if you want to see Mulan, uh, then you're spending $30 to see it plus your subscription to Disney+. Plus. We were talking earlier on in the podcast about animation festivals and the way that entertainment delivered through animation festivals has to adapt. And I think that for the next year or so, this is the type of thing that's going to be tried out. And if you want to support features, then, well, if you want to support Disney features, this is the thing that people are going to have to do. Um. Uh, or, or not watch it fine you know whichever one you want they, they're your options like it or lump it what, what's your thoughts what's your take on this Ben
0: I think to a certain extent it's sort of a, a ploy to like what what can we get away with hmm. how far can we take this until there's enough sort of pushback back that was seen to be taking the
1: piss $30 is a lot isn't it
0: yeah I I I wouldn't be thrilled about that I'd feel like they should offer something else because the thing is, it's already a concession. Mm. Ideally, you'd see it in you know a huge cinema with you know big immersive sound system, and instead you've got to do with whatever you sort of set up yeah. at your home. So you should be paying less, of course. But the the attitude of you know ah, oh, but there's still the exclusivity factor and the blah blah, blah and they they see it before other people can see it, and it's not a need that exists until people are told that they need it. Yeah. When I was a kid, traditionally, movies would come out in North America about three months before they would come out in England, Yeah, sometimes six months. And the clout I had <laughs> when I came back to school in stupid England, and I'd seen... The latest Jim Carrey film, and they would have to wait until <laughs> October. Those douchebags!
1: <laughs> You're going around the playground, going all righty then, and I'm like, "What's he on about?" I've no idea.
0: <laughs> it's called Dumb and Dumber, and it's going to change the face of cinema as we know it. You heard it here first, <laughs> but that is the thing. Like you, you kind of have to have the mind of a nine-year-old to have any to really see any appeal in that. Mm. Like I saw it first, kind of thing. So I certainly wouldn't want to shell out more. I don't know. I mean, if it was like something I was absolutely, it would have to be something I was really desperate to see. Yeah. And that doesn't come along very often, but as a sort of casual cinema goer, no, of course I wouldn't.
1: But so here's the thing. It's, it's a, it's a kid's it's, it was a family family film, shall we say? So it's something that you take your kids along to see. And, you know, neither of us have kids. Uh, we're very lucky in that regard. Uh, (laughs) But, um, what we, what we have there is if we did have kids, let's imagine, for example, you know, you're married, you've got a couple of kids, you're going to take a trip to the cinemas. So you need to drive to the cinemas. You need to park. You need, and then all of a sudden, you can't walk through the foyer without the kids screaming for popcorn or for some sort of uh, beverage with the latest plastic edition attached to it. So you've got to you got to get that special thing as well, or you could, you know, do what we used to do—is and just smuggle in popcorn. Um, feel like feel like uh, like you're breaking the law, even though there's no law against it. You can take your own snacks into the into the cinemas, um, officer. Uh, it it yeah, so. To a family, maybe saying, Right, we're going to have a family movie night and we're going to have what we would usually have at the cinemas. This is a special occasion. $30 is a bargain because you get to rewatch it. It's not a rent, it's a, you know, it is then attached to your Disney Plus subscription. Oh, I see. The problem then, yeah, the problem then is obviously in, in nine months' time um, when when it's part of the free subscription and people can watch it or in a years time I don't know how long it's going to be I'm not I'm not quoting anything officially there um, people just get to you know oh it's just been released let's have a family movie night and they're spending the same amount of money that they would have done anyway so yeah I think you're right it does lean on that those people that want that exclusivity and if there's enough fuss about it and enough people are talking about it you know, all it takes is for one of the other kids in the playground to say, have you yeah. seen Mulan yet? It's brilliant. Go and see Mulan. And then, yeah. you know, the kid comes home and starts screaming until mum and dad have to um, remortgage the house to, to, to watch more.
0: <laughs> we have to watch Mulan. That fat Canadian kid won't shut up about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the thing is, Mulan's already on Disney Plus, and it's it's the price of the subscription. It's the it's the 1996, 1997, whenever it was released, yeah. Uh animated version, uh, 1998. Um, so, yeah, you go watch that. Or tell the kids that that's the new Mulan film if they've not seen it before. They want to know the difference. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. I, well, Disney, uh, uh, they know their business um, generally when it comes to the um, supply and demand and that sort of lesser-known third factor, withholding. Yeah. And I remember, like, even, you know, when they had movies out on VHS. They were expensive. They would charge an enormous amount. Like a VHS would go for like between five quid and a tenner if it was a standard movie. But but Disney movies on VHS would be like up to 20 quid, sometimes more. Yeah. And they had this thing of like, buy it while you can, because next year we're not going to be distributing it anymore. And they kind of bring films in and out of, they deliberately put films out of print. I think they call it The Vault. Yeah. And, uh, that's a pretty sly marketing tactic.
1: It works, yeah. I mean, I think it works because it's based on what their cinema release was. Because what people, what a lot of people don't consider it is that. You know, Snow White was released in, what, 1938 or something? And then seven years later, it was released. And then seven years later, it was released. And then seven years later, it was released. And that was the same for all of them. So, you know, if you go into the cinema in the 1970s, then you you could go and see 101 Dalmatians again, even though it was released in 1961, 62, whenever. Uh, and so what they do is every seven years or so, Disney would re-release it. And so they VHS strategy, and there's a fascinating part of that in a in a book called Disney War, which um, I always go back to. It's 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 an amazing book. Is they trying them saying no? That was that's this is always going to be the way that people can re see these films. They can only re see them in the cinemas. I don't care that they've just released ET on VHS for eighty dollars a pop. <laughs> we're going to stick to our guns, and we're not going to release anything. But then they tried it out. I think it was Pinocchio because that was the only way of convincing. Uh, Roy Disney, because uh, that was the film that he loved the most as a kid. So they released Pinocchio and it became an absolute phenomenon. But yeah, they do retire them to the vault because if they just have them out on for people to, th- there's no value there, is there? And then yeah. obviously formats change. And when formats change, I mean, we all remember the, I think the golden age of DVD was right at the very beginning because everything had special features with it. Because you, I already, have, why do I want these DVDs? Because I've already got the VHS of, of Pinocchio. Ah, yeah, but this DVD has so many special features on it, and it's absolutely incredible. And you'll be able to tell, you know, you'll be see behind the scenes drawings and blah blah blah. And 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 you you were in for that, weren't you? Hmm. And then it was uh, when Blu-rays came out. It was about the quality. It's about seeing it in crystal clear clarity. And now it's about the lack of clutter. <laughs> Who needs shelves full of DVDs and Blu-rays and VHSs? when you can pay us £7 a month and we can just stream it into your television.
0: Why'd you buy all that shit for? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that lady, um, that condo lady who did the reverse of that. She did a whole show about, like, getting rid of your clutter and then she just started selling trinkets on her website <laughs> for people to buy.
1: <laughs> Fantastic. So yeah, entertainment uh, is changing, isn't it?
0: I'm in I'm in the sort of phase of like, oh, it's great to get rid of. Clutter. I like having more space again. You know, in my early twenties, it was like acquire, acquire, <laughs> consume, get a sense of identity through purchases. And yeah. now I'm like expunge, expunge, expunge. <laughs> and you know, probably in five years from now, I'm going to be like acquire something else, <laughs> things to do with housewares, presumably, or acquire a wet room.
1: Is <laughs> <laughs> that? It's not, it's not- as of yet, yeah, I know that you would have really embraced that if I were to go to your flat and there's no Hellraiser dolls everywhere and there's not a cupboard somewhere full of faith nor more variants.
0: Well, that's the problem. is also the the one thing that, of course, has remained is the most cumbersome. It's the giant shelf behind me of vinyl records. Yeah. Yes. So that's the thing I I do still buy. And it's <laughs> the least, if I still bought CDs, it would take up so much less space. Yeah. But yeah, hey. I like a good record, what can I say? Fantastic. They prove very popular. Like I've got, We've got some great animation soundtracks mm. to films. And um, for a while I was posting them up on the Squiggly Instagram. And uh, those always go down rather well. Unfortunately, because I'm working from home now, uh, there's nowhere to put a camera to do that. So that will resume when lockdown's over. But yeah. Amazing. Good stuff. Consumables.
1: Yeah. We were speaking earlier on in the podcast about giving directors a chance give giving people a chance to create something new so whilst the directors or, or or artists or whatever might be working on the next feature film that's coming out or the next tv series that's coming out a good model is to give those people a chance to create something new and to experiment and to create something really that's uh, that's not been done before um Unfortunately, that's, that doesn't appear to be done in mainstream American television at the moment. But you know, we've had that conversation. But where it is being done it is it is being done at Disney. It's been done at the Walt Disney Animation Studios with uh, Short Circuit, uh, which is a, a series of short films. It's exactly uh, as you'd expect, and so these last about ninety seconds each. And what they what they are is it gives animators a chance to pitch and to create films in the studio. And what it also does is it gives those animators who are then leveled up to director an opportunity to see the whole studio and understand how that works. And what it does for Disney, which is great is it gives them a bigger roster of talent and uh, people who they can move up into, into roles on, uh, on feature films and, and such like, I think it's something that blues who do in the UK as well, their films generally come from a, uh, a yearly call for, for anyone in the studio who can uh, get involved in, uh, in, in, in a project and they just have to pitch it uh, and if they're successful in the pitch then Blue Zoo throw some money at it and they get the film made uh, so it's a good model it's a good thing that works
0: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of the idea I think conceptually that's sort of what drove my last film creating internal content was something that our studio was very keen on last year because we, you know, we're getting lots of commissioned stuff in, but not necessarily stuff that kind of showcase the artistry of the employees. Mm. Like, you know, we, we do art to a brief, generally speaking. That's fine. Pays the bills. Uh, it's often quite satisfying. But it is nice to do sort of unique, original creative content. Yeah. So that's sort of something that we were able to dabble in last year, and that was a great opportunity. And I think, yeah, it's great when studios do it. A Productions used to do it as well here in Bristol. Mm. I don't think they've done it super much lately but uh, a couple of other places wonky i think uh, did a couple of films I, I like that impulse i like it because it shows a that you kind of care about what your artists have to bring to the table uh, but it also shows that you're not necessarily just about you know earning a crust there's still a bit of passion that burns for the the medium itself yeah so that's great on a slightly different rung i suppose of the industry ladder than disney but some interesting stuff being produced over there. Yeah. It's an interesting... Because they've kind of categorised it as experimental film, which, going back to our earlier conversation about experimental films, I wouldn't necessarily say is the same beast. Uh,
1: absolutely, yeah. I, I would I would say that um, perhaps experimental for their own ends, but not experimental as in, in the world that we would understand. So it's not experimental like... Um, a film like, say, you know, what Max Hatler won at, at Annecy with. It's not about... It's not like that. It's its an experimental film as in they're experimenting with storytelling, they're experimenting with design, they're experimenting with uh, renders, for example, or, or, or look. Um, they're not doing anything in terms of... They're not doing anything avant-garde, I, I, would, I would say. They're doing something... To, to To experiment with with looks and techniques uh, for Disney, which is which is great. That's their parameters. That's the parameters they wish to set. And if they want to tell those stories uh, that sit nicely on their um, on their platform, then fantastic. It's great. It's great content, and it gets people uh, in 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 sorry, it gets people used to you know what they expect from Disney. So yeah, yeah. It's nice
0: that it sort of steps away from the kind of formulas of. You know what the disney i guess machine is kind of known for yeah you know and to to an extent it kind of puts me a little bit in mind of the fantasia movies Mm. in that they were i mean they probably comparatively more overall traditional like a lot of character work and story work in those films but there was some stuff in those films that was more kind of it was more sort of visually driven in a way that you know and choreographed and you know the interplay of music and visuals it played a bit with abstraction and stuff, but it was still kind of rooted in traditional filmmaking. So that's kind of a nice thing to sort of see re-emerge, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I, I, do, I do have a soft spot for Fantasia in, in that regard. Fantasia, uh, when it was released at the time, the rules of, of uh, feature length animation hadn't really been set. And so the idea for that was that that Fantasia would be released seven years later, as we said earlier on, you know, it'd be released seven years later, then seven years later. And Disney's idea would be that they would keep some of the films, but they would add new films. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so Fantasia would always be different. So when they released Fantasia 2000, uh, 20 years ago now, they did keep some of the original segments in there, but then they added loads of new segments. I mean, one of my favourites, um, "Rhapsody in Blue, which I think is amazing, um, the, the Eric Goldberg-directed uh, segment. And there are films in the short circuit, and one of the directors uh, that, we, that we talked to in, in our uh, upcoming interview here, um, Jennifer uh, Stratton, uh, directed something which is music-driven. It's a film called Zenith um and it looks like it could be taken straight from fantasia um it, it's it's a it's a beautiful homage to that kind of world it's it's about the constellations um all clashing and fighting and, and uh, tumbling around it's great it's a great shot hmm. have you seen many of these shorts, ben
0: Uh yeah i had a little watch through when you were um uh, organizing the interviews you know there's a lot to like visually i did like that zena film it put me a little bit in mind of uh uh, flight of the whales one of the fantasia the newer fantasia segments um, mm. as far as the kind of there's i think a quality in that segment toward the end the kind of glistening quality the starlight against the sort of water droplets and this is a character the interplay of starlight and the sort of textural aurora borealis almost quality of the character Yeah, It's very, you know, cosmetically interesting. Mm. And then there are films that I think kind of play more to the sort of strengths of, you know, uh, character comedy. And I suppose the sort of experimental quality of those is a bit like with Pixar shorts, which is sort of an inevitable comparison of the character comes in objects, things like uh, Drop.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: That was nicely done as well. And yeah, sort of interestingly, you know, around the same kind of time Pixar are doing, you know, their shorts initiative or had done. And it's kind of interesting to see that they're not just the same thing. Mm-hmm. Each scheme has its own kind of sense of artistic identity, I suppose, to it.
1: Yeah, I did like Drop. Uh, and I like the story behind, uh, behind Drop in terms of... Um, so uh, Drop was directed uh, by Trent Corey. Um, all the directors that I'm naming here, we've got an interview. So we've got interviews coming up with Trent Corey... Uh, the director of Drop, Jeff Gibson, director of the VR short Cycles, um, Jennifer Stratton, who we talked about, who directed uh, Zenith, uh, and the director of uh, Downtown, uh, Kendra uh, van der Vliet, uh, Vliet, beg your pardon.
0: Oh yeah, that was good as well, the graffiti one.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Well, the mural, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit of the films by Blue.
1: Yeah, yeah. But yeah, what uh, I liked about Drop as well is the um, the fact that they they worked in in two D and three D, which is always something that people go back to in in these films. Um, but they worked with people who had worked on The Little Mermaid, and you know people have been in the studio for years who uh, you know they're utilising these kind of these talents. Uh, but yeah, Downtown is uh, a, a fantastic example of uh, of that kind of. Because you don't see the character's face as well, I like. I like hmm. you don't see that, and so it's all you know the the way it's directed, you're concentrating on the walls and everything. And then in terms of um, an experience with cycles, you're a you're in this house and you're traveling through time and seeing these little these little moments. And that was obviously a VR shot that they've packaged as a as a standalone two D film, which is great, um, and that works out really nice as well and the director Jeff talks a lot about um how he uh, how he got into that world as he was an architect yeah so lots to look forward to there's some great films if people want to just uh log in and watch some some fun ideas um in the uh the short circuit program they're all on uh on Disney plus cool shall we uh, meet some of the directors then yeah, so uh, this is me trying my best with a, ra- with a round table uh, with Trent Corey, the director of Drop, Jeff Gibson, the director of Cycles, Jennifer Stratton, uh, the director of Zenith, and downtown director Kendra van der Vleit. Um, so, yeah, here they all are.
3: I'm Kendra van der I directed Downtown. Um, I've been working at Disney for about seven years now, and I worked at DreamWorks for three years before that.
4: I'm, uh, I'm Trent Corey. Uh, I've been at Disney for close to eight years now. And uh, yeah, I started in the talent development program there. And My first film was Frozen, and I, I've worked on everything since. Most recently, I was animation supervisor on Frozen 2, and I directed Drop, uh, starting back in
2: 2016. Hello, I'm Jeff Gibson. Uh, I directed Cycles. I've been at the studio since 2013. Frozen was my first film as well. And I most recently completed directing my second film, Myth.
5: I'm Jennifer Stratton, and I'm the director of Zenith, and I've been at the studio for about seven years as well. I actually started on the short Feast.
1: Well, thank you all very much for talking to me, talking for Swigley today. It's great to see this incredible outpouring of new short work from Disney, and there's such a variety of styles and stories that, that go along with the shorts So, Kendra, what drew you to uh, the Shorts program?
3: Um, I I actually had an interesting idea to try something that was kind of anime-inspired, try something with really crazy cameras, uh, a different cinematography look than kind of what I'm normally asked to do on features. Um, So I thought about putting my name in the hat and seeing if maybe maybe I could try it. I I didn't think I'd actually ever get picked. Um, I didn't get into this wanting to actually be a director, but it ended up, kind of being a blessing in disguise, and I learned so much by doing it.
1: Trent, what attracted you to the program?
4: Yeah, so um, when I was in the program, that was the first wave of Short Circuit, and I was kind of developing a, a few ideas on the side anyways, and, and this opportunity came up, and I mean, the, the biggest attraction for me is just, I mean, it's it's literally the coolest gig ever because they, you know, you get paid for three months to make your own idea, and then you have access to the best Disney artists to help you out and collaborate with you. It's like it's a dream come true because you have people that have worked at Disney for twenty years just jumping at the opportunity to work on your little short. It's it's kind of it's kind of mind blowing. Um, so I mean, anytime we can have a chance to uh, to just make something with people and collaborate with other departments, I, I think it's a blast. So it it really was just kind of a fun experimental. Um, experience for me.
1: Was that the same for you, Jeff? As you obviously did your film in VR as well. Yeah, I think I uh, kind
2: of to echo what Trent said. Working with you know really really talented people, but what's also great about the program is that there's this idea of risk taking and innovation and in telling different types of stories and making them in different ways. And so it was great that having that opportunity to make the studio's first VR short film in a real time engine. Like Unity, and then having these amazing artists, these amazing technologists tackle that challenge as well, because they had never made a film in a real-time engine. So, kind mean, of everybody banding together and creating something, and this kind of idea of innovation and exploration was was just incredible. So,
1: and Jennifer, you worked, uh, in ba- you had background in, in VFX, and then obviously came to came to Disney through working uh, on Feast. Uh, has it always been a goal to make a short film at Disney for yourself?
5: Um, I never dreamed that the opportunity would be there for me. So when um, the first round um, happened, when um, Trent made his short, I had started. And um, I kind of wasn't able to get my my idea prepped at the time. So I was really bummed out that I missed out on the opportunity. And so when the second round came around, we weren't sure it was going to happen. I, like, I'm i like, all right, there's no way I'm giving up on this chance again. Who knows if I'll ever have this opportunity again? So like, I think everyone's been saying, like, who would ever imagine you'd be able to go to Disney and direct your own short and, and put your own ideas out there? So um, it like, was a very unexpected, amazing experience for me as well.
1: But Jennifer, you worked on, on Zenith which, uh, in, in your own words, it's something of a Fantasia homage. Uh, basically, it's powered around music, some beautiful visuals in it. Uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about the, the inspirations that led to it and working with the composer on the film.
5: Sure, yeah. Um, like, like I mentioned, uh, Fantasia has been a big part of... Um, just who I've become as an artist. I uh, watched it over and over again growing up, and uh, music was a big part of my life, so um, that was something that was really important to me, and um, Nick, our advisor, was the one who introduced me to Nathan Curtis, the composer, and like it was really refreshing. Like I would, had always been involved in the music, musical world growing up, and then to be matched up with Nathan. Like I felt like I had found someone who I could speak my own language with again. And so that was a really amazing collaboration. Like, um, he was very receptive to my ideas and like, um, I think discussing in pre-production what my ideas were with him, he could visualize it. So that was really amazing. Um, and, uh, effects of course, were really important to me to use in this short and it was a way to experiment um, to give that different look than what we're used to. So um, I think that combining those things together, uh, they kind of inspired each other.
1: Jeff, uh, cycles is, is inspired by uh, it's inspired by your own grandmother, and your mother does the music in the show. It's quite a a strong family connection there. But I was interested to hear that you you've got a background in as as an architect. Uh, What sold you on the move from being an architect to being an animator with the ability to make a short such as this?
2: I mean, I think growing up, I always loved animation, always was into art. Um, And I was also always into BMX and skateboarding. I actually went to architecture school to design skate parks. So I designed skate parks forever and loved doing the digital rendering. That was one of my favorite parts of doing the work. And so I went back to get my master's. In architecture, and decided to just switch because I loved making images more than I did the building, and always had that dream of pursuing animation. And so, decided to just kind of chase that dream and ended up, you know, at Disney working on all of our films, and then for a certain kind of rolling around and allowing this opportunity to tell a story where the home, that piece of architecture, was a character and as important as the human characters in that film. Um, it, was, it was incredible, kind of a weird, roundabout way of creating a film from architectural to animation, but such a cool experience.
1: Mm. I know you said there as well. Your mother uh, composed the music for the short, so it is quite a, a family film. What kind of brought a bit of a smile to my face is there's a bit where your mother gets told off. Presumably, your mother, if it's based on your own family, uh, for staying out le- late. Uh, did she? Did she feel a bit upset by that, or did she? We all we all friends still.
2: So that, that moment, it's actually funny. That moment is inspired by my aunt. And my aunt tells the story of, like, it was, this, you know, the 60s, and her and her boyfriend at the time, they were, we were from Colorado, and they decided they are going to sneak out and go to Woodstock. And somehow my grandpa got wind of it. And it's like, you know, 1 a.m., she's hang, getting all of her stuff together. Her boyfriend is out in the alley, and she sneaks out onto the patio, and my grandpa is just hanging out there. It's like, where do you think you're going? And so the whole plan for going to Woodstock got boiled and and things. So it was just kind of, you know, it's opposite of her sneaking in, but inspired by that kind of, (laughs) that idea of dad always finds out.
1: Everyone's got to be careful if they've got a Disney animator or director in the family because they'll end up in the films. Um, (laughs) I know, it's true, definitely. (laughs) Uh, Trent, your film uh, was inspired by, or was it an idea that came before the shorts program was in a, a... uh, an option was it an idea about something that could go absolutely anywhere? Was it a, a, a quarter?
4: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's correct, Steve. We actually started developing it back in 2014 when I was working on Big Hero Six. So this drop it was kind of like a long time in the making, and I, I developed it with a friend of the studio named Bobby Pontius. And at the time, we were kind of aiming it to be a uh, you know a seven minute theatrical short, something like a larger picture. But when Short Circuit came around and they introduced this idea of it being an experimental program, uh, we were kind of offered as the first people to go in there, that first group of five or six people. So, and I mean, I was just thrilled because just like Jen and everyone else uh, says, like you don't know if this opportunity is going to come again. So the idea of just getting to make it. So what what I kind of decided to do was take a moment from the bigger uh, short that I was planning and try to make that into a, its a little short. But for me, I mean, the exciting thing was, especially coming from the animation department, was trying to create a character, um, like my experimental version of the short is trying to create a character that's organic, uh, that looks different than what we typically do. And, you know, working with the riggers and the lighters to kind of do something different. So that's something that really drove me um, being like one of the first shorts for the program. And actually the neat thing about that is and kind of a fun fact about this group is I think we all worked on each other's short at some point. Like, you know, I worked on Jen's short. I'm sure Jen worked on, Jeff's worked on my short. You know, everybody in this circle kind of helps out other directors and other shorts, which is kind of fun.
1: Kendra, when you were working on uh, Downtown, I think a a good point there is is you had this freedom to work on a project um, that isn't, well, isn't quite the day job. But it puts you in a. Does it? Does this put you in a different mindset. The different responsibilities uh, that that come with directing uh, a short for the short circuit program.
3: Yeah, it, it kind of forces you to step up to the plate a little bit more than what you might do as a normal artist. Um, suddenly, you're in a room and people kind of need guidance instead of me sitting in the back of the room being a little more quiet. But the wonderful thing is, um, I'm slightly more introverted, so it. It was a lot of personal growth on top of artistic growth. You learn to kind of speak your mind and not be afraid. And then the people in the room with you—they're there to support you, you know—and bring ideas to the table. So instead of seeing a position as a director and kind of being terrified of it, you learn to kind of—you love it. You, you love the interaction with people and how it brings out that creativity in everybody.
1: Uh, and your short downtown to riot of art and camera angles. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what's impressive about the short as well is that, uh, and, and about all the shorts, is that you guys have what, 90 seconds to tell a complete character arc. And in downtown, you, ha- you have a character which is faceless, and then you have the the art character, which I think you call mm. Joy. Uh, yeah, we
3: call it Joy, yep.
1: Uh, so, I mean, w- what are the key elements of maintaining a story for 90 seconds?
3: For me, I, I really wanted to try something that, that was very action based, and it and letting the action and the art tell the story versus maybe a traditional story arc like kind of with the character. And by doing that, we, re- we removed the facial expressions to see if we could challenge ourselves to have the effects and the lighting kind of tell the story. And we kept Joy as a character to kind of help guide you and maybe some of the emotional changes going through. Um, and that was a really fun and unique challenge because it's very different than what we do in our features um, where it's very like kind of character and narrative based. It was, it was fun trying to combine 2D animation with 3D art and letting that kind of intertwine in an organic way to unfold a story.
1: Um, and Trent, uh, your short obviously employs a lot of CG for the main character. And I believe that one of the major uh, opportunities that you took on board was to create this character that can morph and, and blend into other things. But you also employed uh, the skills of uh, Dan Lund uh, as a 2D animator to, to animate the water. Uh, and the effects within uh, within Drop. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that uh, m- meshing of styles.
4: Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, I think I can speak for a lot of the short circuit directors that say we all love a little Dan Lund in our shorts because... Oh, yeah, I love Dan Lund. Uh, yeah, I, think, I feel like he's worked on a lot of them. There's you know a few artists in the studio that have definitely contributed a lot to these shorts, and, and Dan's one of them. And you know that came about because we had this we had this kind of painterly traditional look we were going for it. My art director, um, Jim Finn kind of led that by just kind of exploring the painting styles. And we were using meander, uh, to paint the characters, which is a tool that was developed for Paperman years before. And Dan approached me. And, and I mean, this is another huge thing about short circuit that I love is you have artists approaching you saying, I want to work with you. I want to work on your film. And Dan, you know, I, I, Dan's been around at the studio for almost 30 years. I think he worked on Little Mermaid. So when a guy like that comes to you and says, I want to animate water and you're short, (laughs) you say, yes, I'd love to. And, um, you know, it's just, I remember him showing me his first pass and just being blown away. And and to be honest, I don't think we knew how we were going to approach the effects because, um, you know, we wanted that painterly look. And, Really, all I can say about his work is it just tied everything together. I mean, he he did effects on every scene. I think whether it's a shadow or raindrops or lightning or clouds, um, and and he, I think that just really helped to tie everything together in the short. Just I love working
1: with Dan um, and Jeff. Working in VR, uh, I think suppose the, the the first question that people ask when using VR is why use VR? I mean, it's quite. Uh, it's quite obvious why VR was used for this short. Maybe you could tell us through the, the process of deciding to create this short in VR. Yeah, I kind of talked
2: about it earlier where there's the character is that house and how do you really experience the house and how they tell you a story. And um, it's just kind of how how can we place audiences in, in the actual place? And VR just seemed like a great kind of medium to do that. Um, And of to Trent's point, it's great because there were people that were doing experiments in VR at the studio. But people come to you that are interested and want, you know, tough challenges. Fortunately, we work with so many great artists and technicians that love tough challenges. And so people would come and approach me and ask me, can I jump on the short? Can I help with the real-time engine? Can I help with VR? I'm interested. I don't know anything. But I didn't know anything either at the time, and so we just all jumped on and learned together.
1: And is this something that Disney is going to continue with, uh, uh, stepping uh, further into VR do you know of?
2: So I actually just finished directing my second VR short film for studio, myth of Frozen Tale. Um, and so we, we premiered that with Frozen 2 in November, and then we also showed it at Sundance and some other film fest this year, um, and had some exciting news soon about how audiences will be able to have that. So. Um, I think it's just one path for the studio and entertainment. I think that there's something so special about being able to share uh, a film. When you're in the theater or you're watching on Disney+, Plus. you can be with your family watching it. The at the moment is more of a kind of single experience, you watch it you know, solo. Uh, but I think it's, there's potential um, for not only entertainment, but how we create our films. I think that's another kind of cool thing about the program is there's techniques used in whether it's drop or downtown or Venus or cycles. That are now informing how we make our feature films. You know, there's a lot of VR tools that our tech, our head of technology, Jose Gomez, created that actually were used to animate Gale on Frozen 2, where you're an artist in VR, in Arendelle, and drawing kind of the movement and the flow of character. And so it's cool that there's a lot of innovations and discoveries to this program that are starting to inform how we create our films.
1: Fantastic! So it's almost puppetry. People are moving around, and it's being followed. That's great. Yeah, and
2: Trent is actually—I you were one of the head animators, right, on Gale and Frozen Two—to use it, right? Yeah, there was a lot,
4: there was a, definitely a lot of crossover there, um, which is super interesting. And like Jeff said, Jose Gomez, who you know was one one of the main guys for Jeff on on Cycles, uh, led the technology group for Gale uh, as well. So the, I mean, I think a lot of our films in short circuit find their ways into uh, future
1: productions. So, uh, Jennifer, working on uh, Zenith, it's clear that it's inspired by nature. Uh, it's, you know, very kind of uh, very o- organic theme on a universal scale, obviously. What were the biggest challenges in making the short and making sure that it all worked together?
5: Well, first of all, I think it was trying to communicate the style that I had pictured in my mind. Um, because it is a lot of negative space um, and, um, you know, it's not traditionally how we design our characters. So I think that that was the first thing. Also, um, there, I'm a look development artist, so I'm in charge of taking the model and giving it texture and... Um, surface color and all that, and there's actually no look development in, in Zenith, the effects artists kind of took control of that. So we created our characters and environments completely differently than how we normally do. And so it was, I think for the effects team, it gave them a really great opportunity to, to, um, kind of be in charge of that maybe a little more than what they normally are used to. And, um, so Uh, I think that some of the biggest challenges definitely were the scale of... Like, if you actually... We we built all of our characters to scale, so the stag really is really tiny compared to the black hole, and that was really challenging to work with in 3D space, um, and um, there's no ground plane, so it's difficult to um, show the speed that the character's moving at, so we kind of had to use... um, the environment to show that. So I think it was just the style of the film itself kind of um, created some of the challenges we had to face, but it also um, gave it a unique look that um, we ended up with.
1: Well, a question for you all. You've directed a short film for Disney. How have you guys felt yourselves growing throughout this process? Uh, and what kind of future challenges does this leave open for you? Uh if we start with Jennifer.
5: Sure. Yeah. I think like Kendra mentioned, I'm also kind of more introverted. And so that in itself, um, just, I had an amazing team that I worked with. Um, I had, I was working with a lot of supervisors and, um, just really, um, experienced people who I have a lot of respect for. So it was kind of intimidating to start working with them and, like all of a sudden I'm the one that they're coming to and saying, what would you like for this? And I had to be the one to make decisions. So it really did force me to step up like uh, Kendra said. And um, so just, I think as a person at the studio, I grew um, and maybe was able to step more in the spotlight now, as well as it introduced me to uh, so many people at the studio had so much exposure and I think that it definitely gave gives the directors an opportunity like you have the microphone and you're able to kind of prove yourself and um if you know people look at you and you're like well you did this so what else would you like to do so I think it really does open up a lot of opportunities for all of us Mm.
1: and given the the personal nature of the shots that everyone's worked on obviously everyone came up with their own idea and everyone's pitched their own idea. Now that that's done and out the way, what's, what's, what do you want to do next? What's the, what's the big idea next?
3: Um, for me personally, I I think, you
5: know, in, in college, we have to come up with our own projects all the time. And, um, I kind of got used to it as a professional working on other people's ideas. So it really inspired me to keep coming up with my own ideas. And, um, there are some other opportunities at work that were, we were pursuing, um, and I think just looking for any, any other opportunities that will give us a chance to have our own voice again, as well as working with other artists at the studio, a lot of collaboration. I've had people come up to me and ask if I'd like to work with them. And it's also giving us a chance to give back to some of the artists who helped us on our projects. So I think it's creatively, that's where I see myself going, is just wanting to pursue my own ideas and help other artists with theirs.
1: Fantastic. Um, uh, Jeff, you mentioned myth is coming up so we know that that's coming next from you but how did you grow as an artist working uh, on cycles? I think it's you know,
2: kind of what uh, Jen talked about is you start to gain the sense of confidence you're saying, your sense of perspective and kind of trust in your gut as well as that ability to communicate with a team and lead a team but, but also trust the team when there's really tough challenges and uh, figuring it out together I think that's one of the big kind of takeaways from it it's cool, too, because I think, you know, as as going through cycles and now with myth, there's, you know, learning new ways of telling stories or how to use a new medium as a way to bring audiences in, uh, even augmented reality. We did some augmented reality pieces for Cycles as well as for myth, and it's cool to start exploring these new mediums and trying to figure out how do we tell characters, how do we start to tell stories, how do we
1: have audiences connect with characters so it's really exciting. Trent how How have you grown as an artist working on Drop?
4: Yeah I, I mean I definitely echo everybody else but for me personally on Drop I mean that was my first look at the kind of bigger picture of being part of our films and you know we're all in such specific um, departments that it's nice to have an overview look of how our, how our pipeline works how why things happen so that you have a better understanding on our films so for me personally you know, right up almost immediately after working on Drop, I got the role of uh, animation supervisor on Frozen Two. And I, you know, I was thinking about this a while ago. I don't think I would have been ready um, for that supervisor job without my experience on Drop because it really taught me to uh, not only communicate and, and meet people around the studio and, and learn about other departments, but just why things happen in the pipeline and it kind of. It really set me up uh, well, I think, for uh, for taking that role. On uh, Frozen Two, and then on a side note, just with Short Circuit in general, I've been at the studio eight years now, and I gotta say, there's such a, such a surge in ideas
3: right now. Like the whole studio is so excited about creating these shorts. And
4: I mean, when we used to walk down the halls uh, four months ago, I feel like all the time people would say, "Hey, I've got this Short Circuit idea. Do you want to meet up and chat about it?" and I mean, that's that's a huge difference uh, over a couple of years that, that there's just this huge energy serve of surge of uh, people wanting to be involved. So I, I think it's not only changed me individually, but it's kind of changed the studio because there is that uh, new opportunity.
1: Uh, and Kendra, have you found working on downtown has altered your perspective and, and, uh, and made you grow as an artist as well?
3: Yeah, it made me much more confident to try, since I did rough layout as my day job, um, which is the cinematography kind of of films, uh, it made me more confident to try different kind of techniques and how I I shoot something on on features now. And to, I think Jeff was saying, like, trust your gut. Before I was doing work to maybe try to please my supervisors versus now I, I look at what I'm doing, like, okay, I need to please myself. And I found by doing that, the directors and my supervisors respond better to the work that I do. And so I'm fighting now to explore kind of cinematography within the work that I do. And hopefully in the future, I can work on projects that want to tell stories with different kind of camera work. Um, And I'm always really inspired by what I see on streaming Disney plus Hulu, and Netflix even, Um, and be really great to kind of explore some of those, you know, individual filmmaker techniques and seeing what we could do with animation kind of in that same style
1: fantastic. Well, thank you all very much for speaking to Squiggly today. It's tremendous to to have uh, you guys come and tell us about uh, your short films, which people can watch uh, on Disney Plus in the UK, presumably on Disney Plus in the USA and all around the world, wherever uh, Disney Plus is. Um, (laughs) But uh, for now, thank you all very much for speaking to Squiggly today. Uh, Thank you, Kendra. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Trent. And thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Steve.
4: Thank you so much, Steve.
0: So thanks very much to the directors from the Disney short
1: circuit. Good stuff. Good stuff.
0: Right. I think we've uh, effectively put the world to rights once again.
1: Oh, yes. Take that world.
0: See you for episode 100 sometime in 2022. (laughs) At this rate.
1: (laughs) Uh, Of course, the Squiggly Film
0: Club will be uh, continuing on a nearly weekly basis. Maybe we'll take another break after episode 20. Keep in touch about film ideas and stuff. We've had a few in. That's always good to have um, some stuff to refer to down the line. Uh, And they're good fun. Yeah. Yeah, there'll be more, I think, intimate animation coming up, possibly some other uh, podcasty strands as well. We shall wait and see. So keep following us on Squiggly, and that's where you'll find out when it happens.
1: Mm, A share goes a long way. So if you want to share on social media as well, it's good to, uh, to see people retweeting and, you know, letting us know what you think about the podcast as well. That's great.
0: So, yeah, so the next episode will be the 100th episode. Something that we've been kind of talking about internally, you know, life is a very different kettle of fish than it was when we started this. So I've been producing these podcasts, you know, for eight years, I think, at this point. And, you know, it's always a great thing to be able to do, but the access to free time is not plentiful. And to, you know, sink a lot of hours of production and editing and stuff like that into content would be helped a long way if there was some kind of funding perhaps behind it. The thing is, we're not one of those organizations that rapaciously seeks out advertising that clogs up the experience of reading the articles and listening to the podcasts and stuff. That is, unfortunately, the reality is, you know, stuff costs money and time and money and uh, all of that stuff. So... Possibly moving on after episode 100, if it does indeed continue. Um, you know, if it doesn't, I will remain enormously proud of the 100 episodes that we did. Absolutely, We'll always be doing podcasts in some form or other, I think, until the internet crumbles, which might be sooner <laughs> than we think. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as far as the, you know, the sort of highly edited, you know, p- productions, that will be, I think, a bit more scarce. I don't think we're interested in doing like a Patreon for a few reasons, as you know, pros and cons and whatnot, but I think that if we were able to set up some kind of donation system and people were able to spare something here and there, that might be able to help us keep this going. That would be fantastic. So keep your eyes on that if it comes up. Maybe we'll talk about it more in the next podcast.
1: We actually do have something at the bottom of the website if people want to support us now. Uh, So if you go to the homepage on squiggly and scroll right the way down to the bottom, there's a, on the right hand side, there's a little thing called supporters. So you can make a PayPal donation. uh, If you wish, Uh, if the podcast is something that you like and you want to see more of, uh, then uh, a donation goes a long, long way. But like Ben says, we're not going to be the podcast that holds people to ransom or any of that type of stuff. But if you can chuck in. Uh, A couple of quid, it is absolutely appreciated. It all goes towards editing and and, and creating more content for squiggly.com.
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you for listening once again. I hope you enjoyed all our hot takes, or tepid takes, at the very least. (laughs) Thanks again to the talents of the Disney Short Circuit series. Plugs-wise, there are a few things worth mentioning that'll be happening in the not-too-distant future. After a bit of a lockdown lull, my latest film, Speed, will be making a few festival appearances. The first one up is Slovakia's Fest Ancha, which will be kicking off on August 27th. My film is part of the extremely short section of extremely short films. And more specific info on Times and such can be found at festanture.sk. Shortly afterward will be the Linoleum Contemporary Animation and Media Art Festival, where the film will be part of Aaron Wood's special screening hashtag KillMePlease, boasting quote, some of the craziest, controversial and subversive animation shorts from around the world, end quote. Also at Linoleum, another film I can happily say I worked on is quickly Features writer and podcast contributor Laura Beth Cowley's recent animated short The Gift, made for BBC Arts with Calling the Shots, and that will be in the Ladies' First screening. The festival will be running online from September 2nd through to the 6th, and their site is linoleumfest.com if you want to check out what's on offer. Later in the month, speed will be at the fantastic Pictoplasma Conference, which will also be online this year. Uh, the lineup looks absolutely stellar so even if you have no interest whatsoever in my film for god's sake check out conference.pictoplasma.com to see who they have in store it'll be running september 18th and 19th and it's completely free for crying out loud in the nearer future another inclusion for laura's film the gift will be at the arrow video fright fest whose digital edition will be kicking off on august 27th and the film's part of the short films showcase 2 which will be streaming on 6 p.m. that day. For ticket info, check out frightfest.co.uk. And that's all I'm allowed to announce for the time being, but you can keep up to speed with future screening updates and the like at my site ben-mitchell.co.uk, also facebook.com slash benmitchellcreative,
1: if you like. Yeah so we had the we had the the first of our math uh, year round program of events uh, we did here and now a screening of contemporary british animated short films uh, and We've got a, uh, a special making-of event coming up with Lupus Films, so if people stay tuned to ManchesterAnimationFestival.com, then obviously in September, uh, a mere month and a bit away, we'll be announcing the programme. So keep your eyes peeled uh, on ManchesterAnimationFestival.co.uk for updates on this year's MAF 2020. Super.
0: Some of you may recall a little while ago that we featured an article on the site by Tanya Scott, titled Inclusion and Diversity in UK Animation Workforce, a Response, addressing the findings of a prominent industry survey, and it's prompted a lot of discussion, and through podcasts and panel discussions, Tanya's been expanding on some of the conversation points in the months since, Various organizations, such as the recent Inclusion in Animation panel, back in June, presented by the Screen Skills Animation Skills Fund, the University of the West of England, and the Cardiff Animation Festival. It was a really enlightening and frank discussion on ethnic diversity in animation, and the reaction's been really encouraging and strong, and Tanya's keen to do more in a similar vein. And in whatever capacity we can, Squiggly are keen to assist... In the meantime, the hope is to conduct a follow-up panel further discussing BAME issues within the industry. And if you're interested in hearing more or helping out or contributing questions, be sure to follow her new organization, Visible in Visuals. Right now it's on Twitter at visible underscore visuals, or you can send questions to visibleinvisuals at gmail.com. And if you missed the original panel, unfortunately, it wasn't recorded. But the Cardiff Animation Festival put up an excellent infographic piece breaking down the points and insights that came up, which may prompt some questions or areas you'd like to ask about. It's a brilliant read either way. And you can find that breakdown via Cardiff Animation Festival's various social media channels. And I'll put a link in the podcast article. Speaking of CAF, as we were discussing earlier, uh, they've been keeping very busy with their wonderful online animation screening events that approved a big hit. And their next online edition of Cardiff Animation Nights will be on Thursday, the 27th of August, kicking off around 8.15 p.m. And Squiggly will be mucking in with some filmmaker Q&A sessions, so we hope to see some of you there. It's a brilliant selection of films and it's sure to be great fun. You can find more info at cardiffanimation.com. So you can follow us on Twitter, at Squiggly. And uh, we're also on Facebook, Squiggly Magazine instagram at squiggly animation why not follow all three uh, of course the website is squiggly.co.uk if you like this podcast maybe you're new to the podcast all this many episodes in we've got plenty of them we've got quite the archive and uh, we've recently kind of expanded our uh, subscription platform so we're everywhere now apple google spotify stitcher TuneIn, acast and we sort of start everything on soundcloud if you're a soundcloud type person any input or thoughts, maybe, on some of the contentious issues that we raised in this episode, feel free to get in touch on any of the social media platforms or however you like to communicate. You can also find out how to contact us in the contact section of the site. We'd love to hear from you because you complete us, damn it. Mm -hmm. I'm on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell for what it's worth and Steve, you're at Mr. S. _S Henderson, I believe, still. Indeed. Uh, That's all from us, gang. See you next time